Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. It is, as always, a joy and an honor to be with you on this episode. Last night, there was a political rally in the city of Orlando, Florida, the kickoff rally for the Donald J. Trump presidential re-election campaign. And who was in attendance? But so many of high moral character and fiber those who would tell others that their ways of living are wrong by dint of their, oh, their sexualities, their religion, perhaps their skin color, all of it wrong, all of it a danger, all of it wicked and immoral, that they and... uh that which they worship alone, know the true path. And it is that certainty, that righteousness, which leads them to surety. They know what is right, and they know what is wrong. And so they assemble in Orlando with their cargo shorts and their American flag t-shirts and their red baseball caps and listen to oratory confirming their own righteousness. And so it was in Jude's time when he and his wife, Sue, 
were hired to do some work at the local church. And who should stroll in but a bunch of tongue-wagging hens, and we can easily see them with their red baseball caps on, discussing the matter of Jude and Sue and their unusual cohabitation and their peculiar parentage of a strange young boy. And don't you know it, before the afternoon has elapsed, they are out of a job. Sue takes this very hard at first. She cries silently. How could it be that these terrible people are, who don't even know us, are telling us what is right? And Jude takes it more stoically as he takes all things. And eventually they have a laugh about it and they gather their things and they leave the church and overtake their son on their way back to Aldbrickham. And that is where we have left our merry trio, having just gotten shit-canned from church work. Folly had still a pretty zeal in the cause of education, and as was natural with his experiences, he was active in furthering equality of opportunity by any humble means open to him. He had joined an Artisans Mutual Improvement Society established in the town about the time of his arrival there, its members being young men of all creeds and denominations, including churchmen, congregationalists, Baptists, Unitarians, Positivists, and others. Agnostics had scarcely been heard of at this time, their one common wish to enlarge their minds, forming a sufficiently close bond of union. The subscription was small and the room homely, and Jude's activity, uncustomary acquirements, and above all, singular intuition on what to read and how to set about it, begotten of his years of struggle against malignant stars, had led to his being placed on the committee. Well, surely that makes sense. They are unlikely to have found as accomplished a scholar as Jude Folly in their midst. Remember, he has taught himself Greek and Latin and read all the classics and was probably better educated than many of the students at Christminster uh, whom he could not join for lack of fees and connection. A few evenings after his dismissal from the church repairs and before he had obtained any more work to do, he went to attend a meeting of the aforesaid committee. It was late when he arrived. All the others had come. And as he entered, they looked dubiously at him and hardly uttered a word of greeting. He guessed that something bearing on himself had been either discussed or mooted. Some ordinary business was transacted, and it was disclosed that the number of subscriptions had shown a sudden falling off for that quarter. One member, 
a really well-meaning and upright man, began speaking in enigmas about certain possible causes, that it behoved them to look well into their constitution, for if the committee were not respected, and had not, at least in their differences, a common standard of conduct, they would bring the institution to the ground." Nothing further was said in Jude's presence, but he knew what this meant, and turning to the table, wrote a note resigning his office there and then. Thus, the supersensitive couple was more and more impelled to go away, and then bills were sent in, and the question arose, what could Jude do with his great aunt's heavy old furniture if he left the town to travel he knew not whither? This, and the necessity of ready money, compelled him to decide on an auction, which, much as he would have preferred to keep the venerable goods. So they're being driven out of town for reasons that remain a little bit unclear to my modern eyes. The people in the town look at Sue and Jude uh, and apparently do not believe that they are married, which, you know, um, you would think among all those Unitarians and positivists and congregationalists and such some among them would have a more liberal view of such things, agnostics not being known at that time. But apparently, they do not. Apparently, the artisans, though they they may be trying to acquire new knowledge, and though they may be of different creeds, cannot wrap their heads around the fact of a couple such as Jude and Sue, who to my modern eyes do not seem particularly strange, and I'm trying to really understand the strangeness of them. Surely this kind of thing is not unknown in the fictional county of Wessex. Surely other couples have survived some scandal, and the scandal of which they are accused seems rather oblique. There they are, living together, by all accounts, happy. They have this kid. The kid may or may not be related to them, but they seem to take care of him well, strange though he may be. And yet that does not seem to be enough for the townspeople, but their very presence seems to bring shame on all of Aldbrickham. They've not been accused of any crimes or of any untoward behavior. The work they perform is up to snuff. The child causes nobody any grief. And yet, wherever they go now, noses are turned up and the stench of scandal lingers in their wake. What the fuck? Why is this such a big deal? It's hard for me as a modern reader to quite understand. But then again, you know, my my modern sensibilities lean towards the decadent, the lascivious, the mischievous, the sensual. I am a sensualist. I I don't really think I'm a sensualist in any way, shape, or form. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a pragmatist at best. 
The day of the sale came on, and Sue, for the last time, cooked her own, the child's, and Jude's breakfast in the little house he had furnished. It chanced to be a wet day. Moreover, Sue was unwell, and not wishing to desert her poor Jude in such gloomy circumstances, for he was compelled to stay a while. She acted on the suggestion of the auctioneer's man, and ensconced herself in an upper room, which could be emptied of its effects, and so kept closed to the bidders. Here, in bidders, is a pun. I mean, I don't know if it was intended as a pun, but it's a pun to me because she is bitter and there are bitters. Here Jude discovered her, her and with the child and their few trunks, baskets and bundles and two chairs and a table that were not in the sale. The two sat in meditative talk. Footsteps began stamping up and down the bare stairs, the comers inspecting the goods, some of which were of so quaint and ancient a make as to acquire an adventitious value as art. Their door was tried once or twice, and to guard themselves against intrusion, Jude wrote private on a scrap of paper and stuck it upon the panel. They soon found that, instead of the furniture, their own personal histories and past conduct began to be discussed to an unexpected and intolerable extent by the intending bidders. It was, it was not till now that they really discovered what a fool's paradise... Oh, voicemail voicemail on the phone. Martha, I guess, has turned off the ringer on the landline, but it still has this stupid voicemail. We have never received a voicemail of any use on that landline. You can reach us, blah, blah. No, we don't listen to this voicemail. I don't know why we have this landline. It has no purpose. And I was just getting to the juicy stuff. I was just getting to why everybody hates them. I'm sorry, you guys. It was not till now that they really discovered what a fool's paradise of supposed unrecognition they had been living in of late. Sue silently took her companion's hand, and with eyes on each other, they heard these passing remarks, the quaint and mysterious personality of Father Time being a subject which formed a large ingredient in the hints and innuendos. So it, so they're more upset about the kid than they are about them? Well, you can understand that because the kid is Wednesday Adams, or if you prefer, Damien from The Omen. He's a creepy kid with big owlish eyes who stares, does not laugh, and rarely speaks. And seems to be, I don't know, some sort of mythological creation. He is, in fact, Father Time. He is the watcher of time, the keeper of of time. He is a kind of human metronome observing the passage of time and not remarking upon it. He is bizarre. And if they were to put him in a sack and drown him, that would not be too much. 
At length, the auction began in the room below, whence they could hear each familiar article knocked down, the highly prized ones cheaply, the unconsidered at an unexpected price. People don't understand us, he sighed heavily. I am glad we have decided to go. The question is, where to? It ought to be to London. There one can live as one chooses. No, not London, dear. I know it well. We should be unhappy there. Why? Can't you think? Because Arabella is there? That's the chief reason. But in the country I shall always be uneasy, lest there should be some more of our late experience, and I don't care to lessen it by explaining, for one thing, all about the boy's history. To cut him off from his past, I have determined to keep silence. I am sickened of ecclesiastical work now, and I shouldn't like to accept it if offered me. You ought to have learned classic. Gothic is barbaric art, after all. Pugin was wrong, and Wren was right." I guess these are feuding architects. Remember the interior of Christminster Cathedral, almost the first place in which we looked in each other's faces. Under the picturesqueness of those Norman details, one can see the grotesque childishness of uncouth people trying to imitate the vanished Roman forms, remembered by dim tradition only. So now they're getting into what? A philosophical argument about the merits of different architecture styles? They're talking about where to live and this is what they're talking. I mean, this is just Hardy showing off because this is, you know, this is Hardy's passion. Hardy loves this architecture shit. He's an architect, but it doesn't seem very true to me that this is what they would be talking about. A kind of hoity-toity conversation about the difference between two random architectural theorists. And then he says, yes, you have half converted me to that view by what you have said before, but one can work and despise what one does. I must do something, if not church gothic. I wish we could both follow an occupation in which personal circumstances don't count, she said, smiling up wistfully. I am as disqualified for teaching as you are for ecclesiastical art. You must fall back upon railway stations, bridges, theaters, music halls, hotels, everything that has no connection with conduct. I am not skilled in those. I ought to take to bread baking. I grew up in the baking business with aunt, you know, but even a baker must be conventional to get customers. Unless he keeps a cake and gingerbread stall at markets and fairs where people are gloriously indifferent to everything except the quality of the goods. Or, in our case, if you are asked to bake a cake for a gay couple, and then all hell breaks loose if you refuse. I shan't bake a cake for this gay couple. But why? But why? Because then I am confirming their love. But why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you confirm their love? Because I am an artist. Their thoughts were diverted by the voice of the auctioneer. Now this antique oak settle a unique example of old English furniture worthy the attention of all collectors. That was my great-grandfather, said Jude. I wish we could have kept the poor old thing. One by one the articles went, and the afternoon passed away. Jude and the other two were getting tired and hungry, but after the conversation they had heard they were shy of going out. Oh, but after the conversation they had heard, they were shy of going out while the purchasers were in their line of retreat.
However, the later lots drew on, and it became necessary to emerge into the rain soon to take on Sue's things to their temporary lodging. Now the next lot, two pairs of pigeons, all alive and plump, a nice pie for somebody for next Sunday's dinner. The impending sale of these birds had been the most trying suspense of the whole afternoon. They were Sue's pets, and when it was found that they could not possibly be kept, more sadness was caused than by parting from all the furniture. Sue tried to think away her tears as she heard the trifling sum that her dears were deemed to be worth advanced by small stages to the price at which they were finally knocked down. The purchaser was a neighboring poulterer, and they were unquestionably doomed to die before the next market day. Noting her dissembled distress, Jude kissed her and said it was time to go and see if the lodgings were ready. He would go on with the boy and fetch her soon. When she was left alone, she waited patiently, but Jude did not come back. At last she started, the coast being clear, and on passing the poulterer's shop not far off, she saw her pigeons in a hamper by the door. In emotion at sight of them, assisted by the growing dusk of evening, caused her to act on impulse, and first, looking around her quickly, she pulled out the peg which fastened down the cover and went on. The cover was lifted within, and the pigeons flew away with a clatter that brought the chagrined poulterer cursing and swearing to the door. Well, that's nice. I mean, Sue still retains a streak of the rebellious within her. Her tender heart cannot imagine her poor little pigeons being wrung by their greasy necks for the poulterer's pies. Now, it raises the question, of course, why didn't she just release the pigeons to begin with? She knew she wasn't going to get much money for them. And she loved them. So why not just, you know, instead of putting them up for auction, say, fly, birds, be free. But... She did not, and I guess on recognizing her mistake, she tried to rectify it by stealing from the poulterer, and stealing she did. Sue is at times rebellious and at times given to rash impulses. What does this mean? Perhaps we are headed for a murder-suicide. That is my hope. It is my fervent hope. I have been looking for a murder-suicide here for hundreds of pages, and I hope we are finally coming upon it. We shall see in just a minute. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. Part 5, Chapter 6. Let's go on. Sue reached the lodging trembling and found Jude and the boy making it comfortable for her. Do the buyers pay before they bring away the things? She asked breathlessly. Yes, I think. Why? Because then I have done such a wicked thing. And she explained in bitter contrition. I shall have to pay the poulterer for them if he doesn't catch them, said Jude. But never mind. Don't fret about it, dear. Jude, you simp. Jude, you whimpering simp. She let the birds go. Now you let it go. You're going to go over there and give them a couple of guineas for the pins, for the pigeons. Come on, man. Isn't there any of the black heart about you? Isn't there any of the villain in your soul? Isn't there any James Dean in you just aching to get out? No, you simp. Yeah, she stole the pigeons. Yeah, she released them. She did no more than Peter would have done. Oh, never mind. Don't fret about it, dear. It was so foolish of me. Oh, why should nature's law be mutual butchery? Is it so, mother? <laughs> Asked the boy intently. Right. He speaks up on the subject of butchery when that should arise. Is it so, mother? Yes, said Sue vehemently. Well, they must take their chance now, poor thing, said Jude. As soon as the sale account is wind up and our bills paid, we go. Where do we go to? asked Time, in suspense. We must sail under sealed orders that nobody may trace us. We mustn't go to Alfredston or to Melchester, Melchester, or to Shaston or to Christminster. Apart from those, we may go anywhere. Why mustn't we go there, father? Because of a cloud that has gathered over us, though, and he's quoting now, we have wronged no man, corrupted no man, defrauded no man, though perhaps we have, quoting again, done that which was right in our own eyes. So that, that does end chapter seven, and it ends in much the way that uh, I began this podcast, which is to say, and this is, that was from Corinthians and from Judges, um, that they've done nothing to anybody. They've lived pretty good lives. They've defrauded nobody. They've corrupted nobody. They've done what was right in their own eyes. And I return you to that scene in Orlando and to the speaker of the evening. Can it be said that he has wronged no man, corrupted no man, defrauded no man. And yet he exalted on that stage in front of 20,000 or so in their red baseball caps, applauding like mad, shaking the rafters with their enthusiasms. Chapter 7.
From that week, Jude Folly and Sue walked no more in the town of Aldbrickham. Whither they had gone, nobody knew, chiefly because nobody cared to know. Anyone sufficiently curious to trace the steps of such an obscure pair might have discovered without great trouble that they had taken advantage of his adaptive craftsmanship craftsmanship, to enter on a shifting, almost nomadic life, which was not without its pleasantness for a time." Wherever Jude heard of freestone work to be done, thither he went, choosing by preference places remote from his old haunts and Sue's. He labored at a job, long or briefly, till it was finished, and then moved on. Two whole years and a half passed thus. Sometimes he might have been found shaping the mullions of a country mansion, sometimes setting the parapet of a town hall, sometimes ashlaring in a hotel at Sanborn, sometimes a museum at Casterbridge, sometimes as far down as Exonbury, sometimes at Stoke Bear Hills. Later still, he was at Kennet Bridge, a thriving town not more than a dozen miles south of Marygreen, this being his nearest approach to the village where he was known, for he had a sensitive dread of being questioned as to his life and fortunes by those who had been acquainted with him during his ardent young manhood of study and promise, and his brief and unhappy married life at that time. So he's uh he's wandering. He's wandering Wessex, doing a little stonework, a little pickup work, chiseling here, chiseling there, shaping and reshaping the country as it grows. And uh and good for him. He seems like that seems like a totally pleasant, if obscure, life. And of course, anytime the book contains the word obscure, I am pleased because it's in the title. And so it gives me a special satisfaction. You know, I like that. When it, it, everybody likes that. When the title of something is said within the... Th- I mean, that's just something everybody likes. It's just satisfying. Like it's, and, and like uh, like the Rolling Stone song, Satisfaction. When they sing that they can't get any of it, very satisfying. At some of these places, he would be detained for months, at others only a few weeks. His curious and sudden antipathy to ecclesiastical work, both episcopal and nonconformist, which had risen in him when suffering under a smarting sense of misconception, remained with him in cold blood, less from any fear of renewed censure than from an ultra-conscientiousness which would not allow him to seek a living out of those who would disapprove of his ways. Also, too, from a sense of inconsistency between his former dogmas and his present practice, hardly a shred of the beliefs with which he had first gone up to Christminster now remaining with him. He was mentally approaching the position which Sue had occupied when he first met her. So, I mean, this isn't new. We know that Jude has cleared the cobwebs of Christianity from his mind. There may be some few residual filaments dangling there, hoping to snare some mites, some little 
trappings upon which he can feast. But really, his head has been cleared of all of this, and I make no judgment one way or another on the belief system to which he had formally subscribed. But it is interesting that he now in his conversion to Sue's way of thinking, finds the, his old ways so repulsive that he cannot even work on any kind of place of worship. To beautify them, to enhance them, would be to enhance, in his mind, a lie. And, you know, there's something noble about that, something noble about him sticking to his guns, also something tragic about it. Uh, because he had devoted so much of his life to it, and it has treated him so badly. The opprobrium of others has left, no doubt, a sour taste in his mouth when he was just trying to comport a life of honor. And yet, honor seems to elude him in the eyes of all others, save for his pretty wife, Sue, who will not let him touch her. On a Saturday evening in May, nearly three years after Arabella's recognition of Sue and himself at the agricultural show, some of those who there encountered each other met again. It was the spring fair at Kennetbridge, and though this ancient trade meeting had much dwindled from its dimensions of former times, the long, straight street of the borough presented a lively scene about midday. At this hour, a light trap, among other vehicles, was driven into the town by the north road and up to the door of a temperance inn. There alighted two women, one the driver, an ordinary country person, the other a finely built figure in the deep mourning of a widow. Her somber suit of pronounced cut caused her to appear a little out of place in the medley and bustle of a provincial fair. I will just find out where it is, Annie, said the widow lady to her companion, when the horse and cart had been taken by a man who came forward. And then I'll come back and meet you here, and we'll go in and have something to eat and drink. I begin to feel quite a sinkin'. With all my heart, said the other, though I would sooner have put up at the checkers or the jack, you can't get much at these temperance houses. Now, don't you give way to gluttonous desires, my child, said the woman in weeds reprovingly. This is the proper place. Very well, we'll meet in half an hour unless you come with me to find out where the site of the new chapel is. I don't care till you can tell me. The companions then went their several ways, the one in crepe walking firmly along with a mien of disconnection from her miscellaneous surroundings. Making inquiries, she came to a hoarding within which were excavations denoting the foundations of a building, and on the boards without one or two large posters announcing that the foundation stone of the chapel about to be erected would be laid that afternoon at three o'clock by a London preacher of great popularity among his body. Having ascertained thus much, the immensely weeded widow retraced her steps and gave herself leisure to observe the movements of the fair. By and by, her attention was arrested by a little stall of cakes, 
and gingerbreads. Well, we've heard about a potential stall of cakes and gingerbreads before, haven't we? Only a few pages before. Oh, cakes and gingerbreads, their sweetness will entice even the most, uh, 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 I don't know. Oh, cakes and gingerbreads, their sweet smells will entice entice even the most hard-hearted. How is that? That was better because I finished the sentence. So who do you suppose is manning the stall of cakes and gingerbreads? One can guess the baker's nephew and his pretty wife. Let's find out. A little stall of cakes and gingerbread standing between the more pretentious erections of trestles and canvas. It was covered with an immaculate cloth and tended by a young woman, apparently unused to the business, she being accompanied by a boy with an octogenarian face who assisted her. So now Father Time has aged 80 years. Upon my senses, murmured the widow to herself, his wife Sue, if she is so she drew nearer to the stall. How do you do, Mrs. Folly? she said blandly. Sue changed color and recognized Arabella through the crepe veil. How are you, Mrs. Cartlett? she said stiffly. And then, perceiving Arabella's garb, her voice grew sympathetic in spite of herself. What, you have lost? My poor husband, yes, he died suddenly six weeks ago, leaving me none too well off, though he was a kind husband to me. But whatever profit there is in public housekeeping goes to them that brew the liquors and not to them that retail them. And you, my little old man, you don't know me, I expect? Yes, I do. You be the woman I thought were my mother for a bit, till I found you wasn't, replied Father Time, who had learned to use the Wessex tongue quite naturally by now. All right, never mind, I am a friend. Jesus, I mean, it is her own kid. She birthed him. I understand at this point, maybe there is a little probity in terms of keeping that to herself, but she is not at all sympathetic to her own child. And good on him for keeping her at an arm's distance as well. Jewy said Sue suddenly, go down to the station platform with this tray. There's another train coming in, I think. When he was gone, Arabella continued, he'll never be a beauty, will he, poor chap? Oh, Arabella continued, he'll never be a beauty, will he, poor chap? Does he know I am his mother, really? No, he thinks there is some mystery about his parentage, that's all. Jude is going to tell him when he's a little older. But how do you come to be doing this? I'm surprised. It's only a temporary occupation, a fancy of ours while we are in a difficulty. Then you're living with him still? Yes. Married? Of course. Any children? Two. Two? What? What? Another child? This one a natural child? For Sue and Jude? What does it mean that they finally did it? They have a child. That's... Uh, well, that's rather startling, isn't it? I mean, he's never even gone to second base with her up to this point. You know, we're almost 400 pages in. He's never touched her boobs. And now, all of a sudden, three years later, they have a kid? And another comment soon, I see. Oh, what? What? Are we to understand that Sue is pregnant with a third? What? Maybe Sue has discovered, after all this time, that she can... In fact, stand being with a man and how lovely for the both of them that they are 
uh, parents of almost three children. Back in a moment here on Obscure. Hi, welcome back. We're just learning a little bit more about Sue and Jude's family life. As Sue talks to Arabella, apparently they now have two kids. So, I mean, who knew? It's very exciting for them. So let me keep going. Sue writhed under the hard and direct questioning, and her tender little mouth began to quiver. Lord, I mean, goodness gracious, what is there to cry about? Some folks would be proud enough. It's not that I'm ashamed, not as you think, but it seems such a terribly tragic thing to bring beings into the world so presumptuous that I question my right to do it sometimes. Take it easy, my dear. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Good job, Arabella. Take it easy. Why don't you? Relax. Chill out, kid. Yeah. Who are you to think that you're special enough to not bring kids into the world? Meaning like people have been saying this for I don't know how long epochs of time just saying oh how can i possibly bring children into this world and yet we keep doing it so shut up so shut up sue take it easy my dear but you don't tell me why you do such a thing as this jude used to be such a meaning i guess selling stuff jude used to be a proud sort of chap above any business almost leave alone keeping a standing perhaps my husband has altered a little since then i am sure he is not proud now and Sue's lips quivered again. I am doing this because he caught a chill early in the year while putting up some stonework of a music hall at quarter shot, which he had to do in the rain, the work having to be executed by a fixed day. He is better than he was, but it has been a long, weary time. We had an old widow friend with us to help us through it, but she's leaving soon. Well, I am respectable too, thank God, and of a serious way of thinking since my loss. Why did you choose to sell gingerbreads? that's a pure accident he was brought up to the baking business and it occurred to him to try his hand at these which he can make without coming out of doors we call them christminster cakes they're a great success i never saw any like em why they are windows and towers and pinnacles and upon my word they are very nice she had helped herself of course and was unceremoniously munching one of the cakes Yes, they are reminiscences of the Christminster Colleges, traceried windows and cloisters, you see. It was a whim of his to do them in pastry. Still harping on Christminster, even in his cakes, laughed Arabella. Just like Jude, a ruling passion. What a queer fellow he is and always will be. Sue sighed, and she looked her distress at hearing him criticized. Don't you think he is? Come now, you do, though you are so fond of him. Of course, Christminster is a sort of fixed vision with him, which I suppose he'll never be cured of believing in. He still thinks it is a great center of high and fearless thought, instead of what it is, a nest of commonplace schoolmasters whose characteristic is timid obsequiousness to tradition. Arabella was quizzing Sue with more regard of how she was speaking than of what she was saying. "'How odd to hear a woman selling cakes talk like that,' she said. "'Why don't you go back to school-keeping?' Sue shook her head. "'They won't have me. Because of the divorce, I suppose?' "'That and other things. And there is no reason to wish it. We gave up all ambition and were never so happy in our lives till his illness came. Where are you living?' I don't care to say. Here in Kennet Bridge? 
Sue's manner showed Arabella that her random guess was right. Here comes the boy back again, continued Arabella. My boy and Jude's. Oh, she's such a B, isn't she? Just twisting the knife in just a little bit. Here's my son, because she can't stand to hear that Sue is happy. So she just twists in a little knife. Sue's eyes darted a spark. You needn't throw that in my face, she cried. Very well, though I feel half as if I should like to have him with me. But, Lord, I don't want to take him from ye. Ever I should sin to speak so profane, though I should think you must have enough of your own. He's in very good hands, that I know, and I am not the woman to find fault with what the Lord has ordained. I've reached a more resigned frame of mind. Indeed, I wish I had been able to do so. You should try, replied the widow, from the serene heights of a soul conscious not only of spiritual, but of social superiority. I make no boast of my awakening, but I'm not what I was. After Cartlett's death, I was passing the chapel in the street next hours and went into it for shelter from a shower of rain. I felt in need of some support under my loss, and twas righter than gin. I took to going there regular and found it a great comfort. But I've left London now, you know, and at present I'm living at Alfredston with my friend Annie to be near my own old country. I'm not come here to the fair today. There's to be the foundation stone of a new chapel laid this afternoon by a popular London preacher, and I drove over with Annie. Now I must go back to meet her. Then Arabella wished Sue goodbye and went on. Well, we started this episode with a little bit of that old-time religion, and I fear we are going to end with it just the same. Arabella has found God. Arabella, she of low character. She has turned to a higher force than her own low consciousness. And what do you suppose her attitude will be towards the church and towards those within it? I have to sneeze. (sighs) It seems to me that if one were to travel to Orlando in 1895 for such a rally as the one I witnessed last night, you might find someone just like Arabella wearing an oversized QAnon t-shirt and shaking her fist at the reporters covering the event and saying all manner of terrible things because she is so convinced in her own righteousness, a, a kind of temporal righteousness, one that comes and goes with the wind as opposed to the deep rooted rightness, let's say, of Jude and Sue, a form of living that is rooted deeply in the soil, the roots extending back into time immemorial. And so we are shown the contrast of two kinds of people of two very different kinds of faith, two people who have come at the hard questions of life from different places and found different answers. I don't know who Jude and Sue would support 
for the presidency, perhaps Andrew Yang or some such. But yeah, we are left with the image, the kind of grotesque image of Arabella attending a foundation stone laying ceremony for a new parish church to be built there in her mourning clothes. Still the same Arabella, of course, showing no grace or graciousness, showing really no sympathy at all, probing for information, looking for scandal, reminding Sue of her own biological parentage of little father time, the demon boy. And who knows where this will lead? I don't know. But it is an interesting new twist in the game. Jude has given up his religion. Arabella has found hers. Sue remains dubious about the entire enterprise, but is selling very successful gingerbread cakes. My dear wife Martha has just entered the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library as I conclude this week's startling episode of Obscure. She has brought with her the waft of rotting garbage not because she smells, but because we are right next door to the garbage cans here in the Joe Schwartz Memorial Library, and they have not gone out for a week. And because it is summer, they reek as badly as Arabella's blackened heart. And so with that lovely image, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, and you would. Email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.